0: Who's excited and hungry for the word today? So we've been in this, I don't know, series, I guess, message series, really, to tell you the truth, (laughs) I'm just preaching. (laughs) I just got a bunch of stuff, and I'm just preaching until I get through the stuff that I have, but this is a, a lot of teaching about just hell and Jesus' return, heaven, end times stuff, just kind of really bringing some of this teaching to the church right now to help all of us, you know, because the thing is, is that the Bible is filled with the life of God. Every word in the Bible is and carries with it the transformational power and the life of God in it. It's his spirit, it's his breath, it's his life. So there's no word, no book, no chapter, no subject that this book talks about that isn't necessary for us to consume, for us to feast upon and nourish our our souls and our spirits with. Um, And so I just really believe, in fact, I believe this because it's kind of how my walk of faith has went, that when we develop an understanding about the things of God and especially about the eternal things, heaven, what it says about hell and and all that kind of stuff, that it actually encourages us and it empowers us to live a more powerful life to live more in line with the purpose that God has for us, that we need to feast on that stuff just like we need to feast on the things that we love to hear that excite us and that really please us, encourage us. The whole thing does that. If we will receive it, it'll do a work in our spirit that's necessary for the work God has for us to do. Um, and so every, every part of this is important. And when we talk about the eternal, heaven, heaven, the return of Christ, all of these things, it brings us to a place of awareness about the spirit realm that we need to get to. Because I've, I've realized that when we walk in this world, we are faced with every day, really, the opportunity to live more in line with the realities of the world's kingdom or more in line with the realities of heaven's kingdom. It's kind of an everyday thing. And that kingdom which you are more aware of and you are more in touch with is the one from which you will typically tend to live from throughout every day that you walk the earth. And we need to live from, that's why Jesus said, I pray that you be in the world but not of the world. That's why we're called sojourners and here for a temporary time. Our citizenship isn't considered to be one of the world. It's actually considered to be one of heaven even while we're in this world. And so this whole idea that the, the kingdom that we are more aware of and more in touch with is really the one that we'll live from. And we need to live from heaven's kingdom and heaven's realities more than we live from the world's realities and the things that perplex us and limit us and the things that God's called us to in this earthly environment. So, you know, when we're in touch with that, that's why the Bible says that, you know, those, it says, walk by faith and not by sight, So walking means every day to live your life in a way that aligns more with faith, not by sight. Those two things demonstrate faith is realities of heaven's kingdom and what God says and what his word says. Live that way more, not by sight, which is what the natural sees and what the world presents to you as an opportunity. Hey, live this way within the confines of these parameters. That's what the enemy of the world would want you to do. She says walk by faith and not by sight, meaning live from heaven, don't live from the world. And it says that, the Bible says that those who set their eyes on, those who live by the spirit are those who set their eyes on things of the spirit. Those who live by the flesh are those who set their eyes on things of the flesh. So there's a direct indication of that which you see, that which you're aware of is actually that which you live out. So we need to be aware of heaven, basically. (laughs) We need to be aware of all the realities of heaven, of of God's kingdom, of Jesus' return, of our eternal state and condition and everything that that has to offer us. And that that will cause us to live really in a victorious place that we need to be in and that we need to get to. Because when you know the eternal condition that your story holds... Because it is your story and it is my story if we're sons and daughters of Christ. This is our story right here and this end is our end and it's a glorious end. I just want to let you know. But if you know that, it gives you a sense of hope, a sense of strength, and a sense of joy that the enemy can't rob you from with the attacks that this world brings against you. Because you're not living according to this world if we were just living in this world it would perplex us it would drain us it would bring us down so much more but we're saying we're living toward heaven toward an eternal condition that's far better than anything in this world so really satan can never take that from you so what can he really do to you right i mean he can attack and he can try to destroy the works of god in your life and we need to fight him we don't just sit back and say oh i'm just gonna wait I mean, we fight him but the the, the fact that we know where we're going we know what the end of the story looks like for me, guys, it gives me so much faith and so much strength and so much what I would be cons- consider to be advantage advantage over the enemy when he comes against me in my life because I know he can't take those things which are most precious to me. He can't take that which is eternal. He can't take that that I've sowed into my children who've accepted Christ, who've been baptized, and who've confessed him as Lord. They, he can't steal that. He's, he's lost that battle already. And that means that whatever he brings against me is really very small in comparison to the big God and the big future that we have. Amen? Amen? The last couple of weeks, we, we talked a lot about hell because I wanted to educate you about this place the Bible speaks on of hell. And then last week, we sort of jumped out of that. We jumped out of hell. That was pretty good. Uh, and, we, and we jumped into a little bit about the return of Christ. And we kind of started in there, and that's what we're going to pick up today. But I just want to tell you that um, this is kind of like censored stuff. So if there's kids in the room today, just, just be prepared. Uh, because really, there's some pretty graphic stuff here. And I would say this is like almost R-rated, you know, in the sense that the language and the imagery and the, and the some of the violence pictures that we see um, is is a lot to take in. But that's the Bible, you know. It's it speaks about these things, and so I'm just saying that we our kids uh, they all have their own Bibles. Well, the four of the six older ones are can actually read them right now, and so we give most days we have them take quiet time and read their bible and you know they have some of them have the kids version so it's easier to read and all that but we just we make them spend time in the word of god and now they want to it's like we don't i don't have to make them they want to do it but we structure that into our life and uh so i'll never forget bella she's 11 and she was reading one day this was probably a couple years ago and uh speaking of like how the bible has some some pretty graphic things you know she came to us and she's like dad uh mom dad like what what is a harlot oh oh, where have you been reading, honey? (laughs) Song of Solomon, oh. It talks a lot about breasts and uh, it's like, whoa, okay. So he's like, be ready for that, you know. Um, But praise God that the word of God is transformational and that there's always a work that it does in our life and in our heart whenever we receive it, even if it seems like it's the harder things to hear. That was an interesting story, though. But anyway, so... Let's open our Bibles to begin in Revelation chapter 12, and I want to, the best that I can, the best way that I know how, I want to try to piece this all together for you, okay? Hell, the beginning of creation, the fall in the garden, Satan's rule sets in over the earth, God is still on high, then it ends up sending Jesus, he divest Satan of his authority over his sons and daughters and gives us authority back. But Satan's still present in this fallen world, still wreaking havoc. And only those who live with the new authority that they've been given actually have him under their foot in the way that they live out every day. So I'm, I'm wanting to kind of piece all this together for you and then look toward what is yet to come that hasn't happened yet. But it is important to note when you read the book of Revelation and when you study these things, you can't always be absolutely certain of the sequential order of stuff. Um, sometimes it's hard to tell at what point certain things may or may not happen. And frankly, there are more than one, there's more than one theory by very respected, very renowned scholars and theologians about a number of these things, okay? So I just say that to you, say, we need to take it in and receive it that way. I'm gonna try to give you things and say, look, here's the parts of this that are clear, and then here's some things that we're just not entirely, I'm just not entirely sure about, so I have to present it to you that way. Um, and, And to also say that just be careful when you are talking about the Bible and you're talking about these things, be careful what liberties you take to speak in absolute or certain statements, like, oh, this is definitely you know what happens. Oh, this is what occurs. Well, just be aware, especially when you're talking about unfulfilled prophecy in the book of Revelation, that there are a lot of people way smarter than me and they have different theories on some of these things, okay, and so I don't wanna ever come and say, hey, This is what it is. Like, I come and say, this is what we know. This is what we can certainly see to be true. These things happen, but maybe in what order or how this takes place or what this really means in imagery, we we don't know entirely. Okay, here's some thoughts and some theories on that. So the first part I wanna do is go to the book of Revelation in chapter 12, verses seven through nine. We're gonna kinda just take a a quick step back before we jump forward. And uh, verse seven, it says, war broke out in heaven and then Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. Now, every time you see the word dragon, that represents Satan, okay? There's the dragon, which is Satan, and then we'll get into it in a little bit. There's what's called the beast of the sea, which is the Antichrist, and then there's the beast of the earth, which is the false prophet. Let me just stop and make a little point here. Satan, Antichrist, false prophet, three. It's commonly referred to as the false trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit being the true trinity, right? It is amazing how much Satan closely tries to align himself with God in order to deceive God's people. He doesn't have to work that hard with unbelievers. With believers, he has to be manipulative and deceptive. That's why the Bible says that he comes as an angel uh, disguised as an angel in light. He's deceptive, okay? uh, uh, Satan... False prophet and antichrist, a false trinity. He's operating in three places. He's, under, he's controlling the antichrist and the false prophet in the way that the end times come about. But I just think it's crazy, and you need to be aware of that. It's, Satan is a manipulator, and he is a deceiver. And it even speaks about in the end days where there are some who consider themselves to be true followers of Christ who are actually led astray by the deception of Satan. And I would say that likely the case is that maybe they never really did know Christ uh, truly, they'd never really given their heart to him as Lord and Savior, but th- I don't know. That's just a theory, okay? So anyway, uh, verse seven, and war broke out. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, which is Satan, and the dragon and his angels fought. So the dragon has his own angels, okay? These are demons. Demons are fallen angels. Here, listen to what happens to them. This is back in the beginning, most likely before the creation of the earth and everything else took place. This is happening in heaven. But they did not prevail nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So Satan was an angel that was actually present in heaven at one time. So the great dragon was cast out and the serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So there's this event that happens in the heavens where Satan, also known as Lucifer, is an angel. He attempts to exalt himself above God. He attempts to take worship for himself instead of for what's owed to God. And in the process of trying to usurp that and trying to glorify himself, trying to exalt himself, he is cast down to the earth. Him and all of those angels who he rallied together with him, they're cast out, sent down into the earth, and now allowed to roam the earth and begin to have deception and attacks and things of that nature in the world that happens so think about this the Bible says those who exalt themselves will be humbled that means those who elevate will be lowered but it also says those who humble themselves will be exalted so those who lower themselves will actually be exalted by the hand of God not by our own hand this this is amazing so Satan Christ and Satan imagery of contrast Satan Attempts to exalt himself to the highest place that he could, anyone could be exalted, which is above God. And what happens? He, he experiences the ultimate fall. He's cast down into the earth and then into the pit, which is what we talk about like hell and Sheol and the underworld, and eventually will be sentenced into the lake of fire forever. So he tried to rise him, raise himself up and he experienced the ultimate fall. Now think about Christ. He came down from heaven humbled himself and lowered himself to walk in human form, was spit on, was, was mocked, was beaten, was tortured for our sake, the, the lowliest form that he could go and God exalted him back up to the right hand of the Father. Isn't that amazing, the contrast between those two? So the, the reason I started there is I want you to see, of course, that Satan was tossed out of heaven and now he is afflicting the people of this world with his tactics, with his deceptions and with his manipulations. Now, just quickly to kind of summarize this part, because we talked about this a little bit the last two weeks, that Satan deceived Adam and Eve in the garden and God created Adam and Eve originally to walk with closeness and relationship with him, intimacy, and to have dominion over all of the earth. The Bible says that he told man, have dominion, subdue the earth. Like we had authority over everything in this world before Satan tricked Eve and then Adam. Just wanna remind you of that order again, ladies. Uh, no, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Uh, and so he tricked them and then they gave up that dominion we know that because satan when he was talking to jesus in the mount of temptation in the 40 days when he was tempting jesus he said hey look at all the kingdoms of the world if you'll worship me i'll give them to you because they've been delivered unto me right god didn't give them to satan man relinquished them to satan in the garden and so satan now has this ability to wreak havoc on the world and after Adam and Eve fell in sin, the condition of all who were born were born into that sin and under and subject to all those horrible attacks of Satan, you know, which does explain a lot of why there's so much bad stuff that happens in the world because evil is present, right? And, uh, and so Jesus comes along. He suffers and dies on the cross. He's exalted back up to the right hand of the Father. The blood of Jesus cleanses us of our sins, And once we receive that and we're cleansed and we're restored to relationship with God and we're restored to the authority and the dominion that God originally planned all along. But only those who know that and walk by faith actually walk in that authority. Does that make sense? So we have to exercise that authority as sons and daughters, as heirs of what we've inherited. We have to exercise the rights to that inheritance, basically. Um, Now, this is really crazy too, but, and I didn't touch on this last couple weeks, but I wanted to touch on it because anything that I think is really important, I'm gonna touch on And so, when Jesus died, we talked about what he did in the three days in the belly of the earth before he rose, and then he was on the earth in resurrected form for forty days, and then he ascended back to the Father in heaven at the right hand. So, there, at some point in this process, most likely in the three-day period or right after the three-day period of um, after he died on the cross, it says in the book of Hebrews, chapter nine and chapter ten, that Jesus actually entered into the most holy of holies which he actually took his blood and he went into heaven and he put his, he spilt his blood on the mercy seat of heaven to satisfy the condition uh, that needed to be satisfied, which is that we needed to be able to be cleansed from sin in order to have access into heaven. Because the Bible says no lie, nothing defiled can ever enter into heaven. So man couldn't enter into heaven until Jesus' blood cleansed the mercy seat. This is what's crazy is that in the Old Testament, when James was talking earlier today about one day a year that the priest would go in to the the temple, um, there was this thing called the Day of Atonement when the priest would take blood from a sacrificed animal and then they would go in and then they would pray the priest would, and then they would put the blood on the mercy seat, which was on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, behind the curtain of the Most Holy of Holies in the tabernacle that God had instructed them to create. And so when they would pour the blood of the sacrifice, God, in his wisdom, and, and what the Bible refers to as forbearance, meaning he was withholding judgment that was due for a period of time until a better solution could be brought, so he's merciful, but it says that he would accept the sacrifice of this blood, of this animal and he would forgive the sins of Israel of the people and so they would have to do this all over again every single year so they go the priest goes in with the blood of an animal and spills it on the mercy seat of the all of the ark of the covenant in the temple Jesus takes his blood the pure perfect and spotless lamb and goes into the holy of holies and offers his blood on the mercy seat of heaven and cleanses it once and for all. And that's why the Bible says that the blood of goats and the blood of calves would only be a a solution for a temporary time. But the blood of the sinless one and the perfect one offered the solution and redemption for mankind once and for all. So there's never a need for that sacrifice to happen anymore after that because Jesus did it in the temple in heaven in the holy of holies, not down here in the temple of the earth. That make sense? So anyway, so after all that's done, now we have this authority that we walk in. So now we live in this time that's called the church age. It's a scholarly term. It's not a biblical term, but it it aligns with the teachings of scripture, okay? Um, And so what that means is that Christ came, died and from the dead and cleansed us, and then he he poured out his Holy Spirit on Pentecost and empowered us to be able to build his church to be able to live with power and authority and so we are expanding the kingdom of God here on earth seeing lost souls saved which was the mission of Christ when he first came remind you of that says he came to seek and save that which was lost Bible says he did not come to condemn the judgment that's to come for all the unbelievers of all the times will actually happen upon Christ's return. It doesn't necessarily, it, it, we live in the church age, which is we're building the kingdom. We're trying to save people, not sentence them to hell. We're trying to help them see the message of hope and of the gospel so that they can be saved. Now, will people go to hell if they don't accept Christ? Yes, we know that. But our mission is not to try to sentence them to be like executioners of this. Our mission is to actually bring the message of hope because we're in the church age. And that's what Jesus came as he established that message of hope. I came to seek and save that which was lost. I didn't come to condemn. Them. and so now we are in that time and that time will exist folks it is now and it has existed for over 2,000 years since Christ did what he did and will exist until Christ returns when he comes back then what's called the dispensations of time change the era the age whatever begins to change all right so one of the things that people have often thought about or asked or wondered is when is that going to happen has anybody ever wondered that before when does he come back well the bible is pretty clear that it's not for man to know the hour or the day so that means the very specific of it's going to happen this day and in this year like just be careful if you hear people saying that stuff all right there's theories and it's interesting i admit it's intriguing but just be careful i don't know how somebody could say this is when it's going to happen when the bible says it's not for man to know the hour or the day you understand how you can kind of hold scripture up against things and say like you can vet things that way so Anyway, it says we not to know the time or the hour, but it does give us indications of seasons. So seasons are different than days and hours, right? Days and hours are down to the nitty gritty, down to the specific detail. Seasons are kind of like, you know, we have a season of fall or we have a season of, Uh, different things and they're prolonged and and so it's it's kind of more of a stretched out thing but there's signs of what this season when it's close to Christ's return will hold and the disciples themselves knew because Christ talked about his return now they didn't understand exactly what they meant or what he meant by this but they knew that he was coming back after he would leave and so they were asking him what this was going to look like or when it was going to happen and so go to Matthew chapter 24 Matthew chapter 24. This is a very, very solid and famous uh, chapter in the Bible about the return of Christ. And, and what's awesome about this one is this is Jesus actually speaking in this particular case about it. Um, so verse, let's pick up in verse 3. So now as he, Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives. <laughs> time out. So this is awesome. So he, where is he at? He's on the Mount of Olives. Do you remember when I talked about the last couple of weeks that when Jesus ascended into heaven after the 40 days, where was he at? The Mount of Olives. When Jesus returns, where will there be an earthquake that will split a mountain and his feet will sit upon that? The Mount of Olives. What did the angel say? As he's, as he's ascended, so how, shall he return Right when they saw Jesus go up into heaven. So he's this Mount of Olives is is of great significance. And I just think it's interesting that they're asking about when he's gonna return and he's talking about when he's gonna return and they're on the Mount of Olives. Isn't that amazing? Like the way God just threads the scriptures together with all this. So he sat on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and at the end of the age? See that, the end of the age, Right. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. Now pay really close attention to all this. We're going to move through it, so I don't have time to break every bit of this down today, but just take it in, okay? Uh, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom there will be famines pestilences and earthquakes in various places Now by the way earthquakes also create a lot of chain reactions because the tectonic plates in the earth begin to shift and that sets off things like volcanic eruptions it sets off tidal waves and tsunamis there's just cataclysmic events are often triggered by what's happening beneath the earth Another interesting thought beneath the earth, right? So, um, nation will rise against nation. Okay, earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginnings of sorrows. Okay, I alluded to this, I think, in week one, but I didn't, we didn't read these verses. Uh, all these are the beginning of sorrows. That term, beginning of sorrows, is a, a term that also was used to describe a woman who goes to, into uh, delivery to give birth. But as many of you women know, Um, that have given birth, there's a building process up to that point, like contractions start even many times like weeks in advance to kind of get the body ready and and prepare the, the woman for childbirth, and then the contractions start to get a little closer together, and then when they're at like a minute apart, it's time to go to the hospital, been there plenty of time, so Katie's like, let's go, let's move this thing along, come on, I'm like, just take your time, you know, run, let's jump, anyway, so and then they get to the point at the end where they're, they're just seconds apart and they're the most painful and with great intensity. And then the beautiful birth is brought forward and everything that the pain was endured for is now worth it all, right? This is a picture of the way that the earth begins to suffer. The earth is the beginning of sorrows. There's groanings, the Bible talks about, the earth has. So there's this building type of thing that's occurring in the earth where these cataclysmic events are going to increase with more frequency and more intensity and greater levels of destruction, okay? So that's when he says the beginning of sorrows. And then he says in verse nine, they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you and you will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. So in the end time, right before Christ returns, there's a period that's known as the Great Tribulation. And I'm gonna talk about that. I don't know if I'm gonna get to a lot of that today. But the part that I'm gonna hit on, which you see here, is that there is a a lot of horrific and suffering types of things that are happening during that period, many of which are happening because the earth is being destroyed. And these are actually being brought on by the judgment of God um, from heaven but there's also the Antichrist that's reigning in power and it talks about how he is seeking to get all of, those, all of those who are alive on the earth at that time to take the mark of the beast and if they won't, that they'll be killed. So we know that there are many in the final days who will be martyred for Christ's sake during the time in the reign of the Antichrist. And so verse 10, it says, and many will become offended and will betray one another and hate one another. And then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Notice all the deception, all the disunity, and all of the discord. Do you recognize in our nation today how so much of what's happened, I mean, I don't know if you see this, and I just feel like I kind of see beneath, behind the scenes a little bit or whatever, between the lines, and it's like every issue now becomes an issue to try to divide people. Like when did, you know, one person's, court case become like a, a reason to divide the country you know what i mean it's like everything now becomes an opportunity to create more division and that's what satan does he tries to isolate and divide he, he tries to conquer from within and if he can divide those who are unified and they become disunited disunited then he can bring them down one step at a time and this is what will be represented in a dramatic way during the end days in verse 12 and because lawlessness will abound (laughs) the love of many will grow cold so the Bible says another place this whole idea of lawlessness that in these times that people will look upon things and they will say that what's wrong is actually right and what's right is actually wrong things that would be so difficult for us to even conceive like how could you think that that is right it seems so logical that it's wrong but the, the enemy will deceive like a whole bunch of the world in things that seem so obvious to us, right? Um, but he endures until the end, shall be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. And then the end will come. There is this building up to this point, and all these things are happening. Again, there's a period of what uh, we see is seven years of the great tribulation, and the seven years is actually sparked by the uprising of one who will come to power who is known as the Antichrist. And it says in places that he will, there's a lot of like prophetic imagery in Revelation, but one of the things it talks about is that he'll have uh, these horns and there'll be 10 horns. And so most theologians will say that the Antichrist will actually like unite 10 different nations or superpowers but it also says that there's a little horn and so many rep- say that this is like that the antichrist will rise up from some humble place now here's what's very interesting now, so where he'll come from there's different theories um, some people think Iraq and Babylon some people think Syria and in different parts of the earth but what's interesting though is that uh, when he does come to power the imagery we see is there's first, it it talks about a white horse and then it goes into a black horse, a red horse. So the point is that the white horse, when he first comes to power, he will come in a way where he looks like he's an ambassador of peace. He will look like he's doing a good thing in the world. He will look like he's bringing people together and he's bringing unity and he will deceive many and then they will begin to like really idolize him. And that's what he's after. He's after the worship. He's after the, the subserviency of people to him and not to God. But halfway through the seven years, the Antichrist will, will break this peace that he has sort of falsely represented or, or acted like he's standing for. And at the, at the midpoint, he will break that peace. And then the second half of the seven years is when really all the judgment on the earth begins to get poured out. From what God is doing in heaven so the Bible speaks about in heaven there's these angels that have these seals and then there are these trumpets and then there are these bowls okay so all that this what I want to say about this right now is that as these seals are being opened trumpets are being blown and the bowls eventually get poured out these bowls are bowls of judgment and they're bringing upon the destruction of the world that's happening, plagues, pestilences, earthquakes, as the sun will grow dark, all these things are happening. So it's happening in the heavenly realm. God is giving orders and angels are dispatching orders and so something from the the spiritual realm of the kingdom of heaven is actually happening and it is colliding with what the natural world is experiencing and seeing. And those who understand these things will recognize that the works of God are building and growing. Whereas those who don't will feel like they need to serve the antichrist in order to be safe and that they need to be loyal to him in order to be protected, to have food and not starve. That's why he says you have to take the mark of the beast. It says they won't be able to buy or sell without that. And so it'll be like forcing people into this place where they give over their heart, they give over their loyalty to him instead of to God. Now, at the very end of this seven-year period is when Jesus returns. That's when he comes back. And so if you have your Bibles, again, go to Revelation chapter 16. And this is what is known as the return of Christ, which is basically the same time of the battle of Armageddon. In the battle of Armageddon, I'm going to spend some time on now today, and it, it's probably going to end up ending there. Um, but it gets kind of graphic, okay? But in Revelation chapter 16, first in verses 12 through 21. Okay, I talked about, I talked a little bit about the bowls a second ago in the, the judgment, right? So this is the sixth bowl. And listen, this is a lot to take in. I get, I've studied this for years and hours, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to give it to you in some digestible bits that will nourish you, um, but just know that if you're like, ah, the bowls, I'm not quite sure, like, <laughs> same here, okay? I mean, I have to go back and study this stuff a lot. So, uh, then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its waters dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. Okay, pause. This is powerful. <laughs> So, in one of the cataclysmic type of events that are happening, we see that the great river Euphrates, which basically runs from north to south, kind of an east, uh, northern to southern uh, route, and it forms like an eastern border, if you will, to most of Israel, separating it from the countries of the Middle East, which I just want to remind you are predominantly Muslim and Islam, okay? So, this river is a, is a, is a great natural border. It says that the river will dry up completely and that that will make way for the kings of the east to march. You see, the battle of Armageddon is when Satan is rounding all of his forces up as everything builds and intensifies and heightens to the end. All the kingdoms of the world, what many think are the ten kingdoms that are remaining that Satan is over all of them and controlling, they will all march to Jerusalem. They will all head to Israel to stage war for what they feel is a battle to annihilate Israel and God's people. But it's the final stage of the final battle that's to come. And at the very end part of that, the river Euphrates will dry up and the kings will just march right across dry land and march from east to west, right across what that natural border that's been there from the beginning. And they'll walk right through and head right to Israel into the valley of Armageddon to set the stage. Pretty, Pretty powerful stuff. Now, this is also interesting the river Euphrates is actually drying up right now because there's a lot of things that are happening in Turkey and in Syria with dams and where they're blocking water. Over there, like when we were in Israel, we take for granted the water that we have here. Like it's a major issue to have water over there. So any river, any source of water is highly valued, protected and everything. Well, what some of the regions are doing and the northern parts, like in Turkey and in Syria, are damming up to try to preserve water. And it's, the actual level of the Euphrates River is going down right now. It's happening. There was an article in New York Times a couple years ago on this, how it's actually drying up. So kind of interesting, huh? Anyway, so verse 13, it says, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So there you go, you have Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Let me just tell you briefly about the false prophet. So the Antichrist comes to power, he's the one that's reigning, but then there's another one that comes called the false prophet. He's the beast of the earth. The Antichrist is the beast of the sea. The false prophet's whole job, and he's being controlled by Satan, is to try to bring people's loyalty to the Antichrist. He is basically an ambassador to promote the Antichrist in his reign so that people will worship him. It says that at that midpoint of the seven years when the treaty is, when the peace is broken, that the Antichrist, or that the false prophet actually makes an image, a a statue of the Antichrist and that causes people to worship. Because listen to this, he does a miracle sign where he actually causes the statue to speak. Satan has powers too. Very demonic, very manipulative, but he does carry forth supernatural powers. That's like when people say, dude, it was so weird. Like I was praying with a Ouija board and something happened. I'm like, no crap, something happened. Do you know what you're doing? Like, yeah, that stuff is real. There's demons. There's evil stuff that Satan does. So, so this, anti, this uh, false prophet will make this statue begin to speak and will look like wow and it will cause the people who are being deceived to worship the antichrist and this is crazy but at that midpoint it says that he will go and sit down in the temple in jerusalem which was originally where god's people built the temple he will sit down in a chair in the temple and declare himself as god it's what's called the abomination of desolation. The Bible speaks of it in several places. He desecrates the temple by Satan himself standing in God's chosen place and declaring himself to be God and vying for the loyalty and the worship of all who are left on the earth. That is when the whole thing triggers and the last three and a half years begin to unfold before the judgment comes. In verse 14, it talks about the, the three, the false trinity there. In verse 15, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he was naked and they see his shame. So God is speaking here, saying, blessed, I come as a thief. Other places, it says he'll come as a thief in the night. It says in the twinkling of an eye. It's just gonna happen, just like that. I don't understand that completely, but in the scope of how we measure time, I think it's just gonna be like, boom, in an instant, it's just gonna unfold. And so, He's, what is the important part that we need to know? If we say, well, I don't know exactly what day. I don't know, you know, what order all this stuff happens. The important point that we have to know is that we have to live ready. That's it. We have to live prepared as if it could happen tomorrow, today. It, it just That's the way the posture of the Christian needs to be bent in the walk in this life is that I know where my eternal condition lies, and it could happen any day, and I'm ready. I'm living with purpose today so that I can serve God and bring his will into this earth as much as he'll use me to do because I might not have tomorrow to do it. And that's the real warrior, that's the real posture of the Christian folks that we have to see that we need to be living. Not apathetic, not I'm gonna live in my own pleasures and enjoy my time you know, and make sure that I'm happy. I know that that's a lot of the world's thinking, but that's not the way that the Christian is called to live, right? We're called to live ready and to serve God every single day. And it is the blessed life, praise God, that there is abundance of blessing in that. It's just that we seek him and his will. We don't seek pleasure and contentment first. That's the whole thing. Moving down into verse 17 through 21, and then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. Okay, so this is setting the stage now, the final happenings on earth and Christ is getting ready to return. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings. And then there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as has not occurred since men were on the earth. Do you remember what I said last week about the ring of fire? If you weren't, is anybody not here last week didn't hear it? Okay, sorry. You can watch the podcast. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) So, (laughs) so there is what's called the ring of fire. Geologists have nicknamed it this, but there is like a horseshoe shaped ring of the continental plates that go along a lot of the coastlines of the continents 90% of uh, earthquakes that have happened have happened on this ring of fire 75% of active and non-active volcanoes sit on the ring of fire if there were a dramatic earthquake it could literally set off a chain reaction of events that could cause all of this destruction to begin to unfold theoretically it could be an apocalyptic type of event okay so there's this thing right here that says a great and mighty earthquake unlike any I've ever seen before. So imagine an earthquake that happens over in Asia and then all of a sudden here in the United States, we begin to have earthquakes, like literally just unfolding in a matter of probably minutes or hours. So 19, and then the city was divided into three parts, And this is Jerusalem, the great earthquake we know rips the Mount of Olives in half from north to south, right? We learned about that already. So the great city, Jerusalem, was divided into three parts and then the cities of the nations fell and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Okay. Let me try to do this one. So the... The the cup of God's wrath, the fierceness of his iniquity. The Bible speaks about, and, and there's scholars that teach this, something called the cup of iniquity, okay? And so it's like saying, imagine if people are carrying this cup and their iniquities and their sins as they commit them without repenting or just filling and filling and filling. And eventually, when this cup of iniquity is full, the judgment of God comes forth. And he's like, I have to judge the sin. So this, the, the cup is poured out, the cup of God's wrath. So the cup of iniquity in this part or the fierceness of God's wrath is finally brought on by all of the rebellion and all of the ungodly of, of the earth who are remaining, continuing to defile and do all the wicked works that they're doing under Satan's control. And eventually that cup of wrath of iniquity is poured out. And then it says here that... Uh, That Babylon was remembered before God. So, another place it refers to Babylon, which is kind of like the empires of the world that are now united under Satan's authority, as this is kind of graphic, but it refers to her as the great whore or the great harlot because that she's now went and and tried to seduce and tempt imagine satan in his kingdom seduce and tempt those who would be for God and lure them away into the pit in the trap and and pull them into seduction and caught up in sin and they're deceived and manipulated many again just to remind you many it says who confet, who c- proclaimed to know God will be deceived so we need to make sure that we are right with Christ. We need to know that we've given our heart to him and that we, he is our Lord and Savior and that we live for him every single day. And then it says in verse uh, 20, and then every island fled away and the mountains were not found. Great hail from heaven fall upon men, fell upon men. Each hailstone went about the weight of a talent, so giant hailstones. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail that the plague was exceedingly great. So those who are serving Satan are gonna curse God in the midst of this judgment instead of turning to God. Isn't that amazing? Like you can see the depth of the deception and how deep it runs, folks. Like God is bringing judgment and they're cursing God instead of turning to God when the end is so near. That's how deceived that they are. It says every island fled away and the mountains were not found. So the, the things that are happening on the earth are so drastic that all of the topography is gonna change. Like all of the mountains, things are gonna move away, things are gonna not be there that were there, it's just gonna literally rip the earth and change the earth in these final moments and it won't even look the same as what it does right now. And so this is all setting the stage for the end. Now in Revelation 19, we see this picture of Christ coming. Do you you understand that part? Like all this happens, And then it finally sets the stage, it culminates in the return of Christ. Is at least that part clear so far? Okay, so in verse 11, John's vision here, he says, now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Do you see that? He's coming to make war. He's coming to bring the judgment. And it says that the heavens were open, which means to be torn. So the sky actually tears and rips open. And that's when we know it says that you know, every knee will bow, every eye will see, every tongue will confess. Those who are in heaven, those who are on earth, and those who are under the earth, everybody confesses. No one will deny that Christ is Lord at that point. It would just be whether they are regretting that they didn't choose that in the hour and the time that they had or whether they're rejoicing that they did. It says in verse 12, his eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. So in a lot of pictures that you see, John especially, Um, There are some images, I think, that Ezekiel had, but, you know, we see Christ, you see eyes of fire, but you see a robe of of white, but you see the tip of white dipped in red and blood. So Christ is love and compassion and mercy, but he is also just at the same time, and he is consistent in all of his ways to maintain those attributes of his character. He is never unjust, and he is never unloving. Hard to wrap our mind around sometimes, but you have to realize that the nature of God is always consistent. He's loving and merciful, but he also brings judgment upon those who are rebellious as well. And then in verse 14, it says, and the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. So, armies in heaven, who is that? That is us, okay? Now there's, there's groups of people. Let me just break this down. I think this is interesting. So the armies in heaven most likely refer to, first of all, angels. But listen, we are not angels. And some people think like when we die, we turn into angels, not true. Okay, we don't turn into angels. The angels and God's creation of man are very separate. In, in the Bible, it's very clear that angels actually uh, want to know things that God has revealed to us, it even says in other places of scripture, of his wisdom and of his knowledge. So anyway, angels are part of the army that come back. Um, The saints of old who have already died before Christ uh, and went on to be with the Lord that died in faith and that we talked about were released out of Abraham's bosom. And then the church, which are all those who've accepted Christ that died and their spirits went to be with the Lord in heaven. There's another group we're going to get into probably next week which are what we call this is again a bible scholar term this is not a term that's in the bible but the raptured saints so those who were actually alive on the earth at some point in this seven-year tribulation again different theories if this happens in the beginning the middle or the end of the seven years but there is what we refer to as a rapture which means those who are still alive on the earth when christ is ready to return are caught up in the air just gone it seems like like gone out of the just gone and up there in the air with christ and that we are also a part those who are on the earth when that happens are a part of the armies of god who are with christ when he comes on his white horse for the return that makes sense so angels old testament saints new testament church who, who died in christ and then those who are still on the earth who believe who are raptured those are all part of the armies of god who join christ to come back when the heavens tear open and then it says out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So he has a tattoo right there on his thigh. It says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Um, so anyway, this is the picture of Christ, right? And then, so he comes and then this sets the stage for Armageddon mind you again all the armies of the earth have marched all the the ungodly kingdoms have marched down into Armageddon listen we're going to Israel next year if there's any way that you could ever do this we're, we're hosting a trip I, I would encourage you to just pray about it uh, there's details on our website about it we're taking a, a group from our church and some other churches that are joining us in March of next year it was a life-changing trip the reason I say that is on that trip we, were, we visited a place that was called uh, Tel Megiddo, this ancient city of Megiddo, and this mountain on Megiddo overlooks the valley of Tel Megiddo or Har Megiddo in Hebrew, which is where we get the word Armageddon in English. Har Megiddo is Hebrew. Armageddon is our English word, okay? And so we were on the mountain at Megiddo overlooking the valley of Armageddon, quite possibly the most breathtaking sight I've ever seen. I guess because knowing so much of this is gonna happen. And we were looking and and the valley goes for hundreds of miles and it's miles to the other side of the other mountain range and you could just literally see how millions could march into this valley and the greatest bloodbath in history would occur. In fact, Napoleon, you know Napoleon, right, of France, he said himself that this was the greatest setting for a battle that he had ever seen in his lifetime. And Israel fought many battles in this valley, but this is where the final one will take place. And so we were standing on this mountain overlooking all this and it was breathtaking. But in, uh, in Revelation 14, can I have a few more minutes just to finish this, is that okay? All right, so in Revelation 14, verse 14, talking about Ar- Armageddon. So you, the thing is like, there's parts in Revelation 19, and then there's parts in 14, and then there's parts in 16, and there's like these different pictures of the same thing. That's what makes it hard to like, you know what I'm saying? You've you got to kind of piece it all together and, and just take it as it is. And so in verse 16, I'm sorry, in verse 14, it says, And then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Sickles are used for harvesting, okay? I talked a little bit about this last week, but this is where this is. We're gonna go there. Another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap. For the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And then he who sat on the cloud, thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. So at the very end, Christ comes back. We know he's on a white horse. We know there's a sword coming out of his mouth. We know that he also has a sickle. And the angel says, sink your sickle. Say that seven times fast. Sink your sickle into the earth. And he seeks it into the earth and he reaps the harvest. And then the next angel, it says, then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, also having a sharp sickle. And that angel came out from the altar who had power over fire and he cried with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle saying so this is a this the son of man thrust the first sickle into the earth this is an angel the ready to thrust the second one thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe so the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God and the winepress was trampled outside the city so Uh, Armageddon the valley all that just outside the city and runs from east to west it's outside the city and the blood came out of the wine press up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs which is almost 200 miles the bloodbath now there's there's a lot of questions like what does that mean is there really blood like four foot high in the valley like a, a new river maybe Some people say it's just the carnage of bodies would be up to about four feet, which is where the bridles and the horse's mouths would go. Regardless of what exactly that looks like, you can see the carnage that's laid forth. It's all of the unbelievers, all the ungodly who are rebellious, who are following the Antichrist, led by him under Satan's control, who march in and done. Just like that. You see that there's not really a battle. You see that? It doesn't there's not actually like a fight, like Jesus returns and he says, everything that I've said, everything that this was all about, it's here, Whew, done. Like the time is over, the new age is now beginning to set in and this is gonna change. And so in Revelation, uh, where was I at, 14, verse 20. And so let me just read you in 19, verses 17 through 21 of this same event. Just a different part. So it says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all of the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, listen to this, come and gather together for the supper of the great God. They're going to come and feast on the carnage and on the flesh. Pretty gruesome. 18, That you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, And the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And then I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. You're tracking with me through all that, right? Where we were? The beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, so the Antichrist and the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Remember the statue? Those two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. They are the first two, the false prophet and the antichrist to go to the lake of fire. Remember, that's not Sheol or Hades under the earth. That's different. Lake of fire is the final destination. These are the first two that get cast in to the lake of fire, which is eternal damnation, torment, weeping and gnashing of teeth. The worst part of that, folks, is separation from God. That's the worst part of of this place, the lake of fire. In verse 21, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and the birds were filled with the carcasses of the flesh. So he feasted the birds. All this carnage, all those unbelievers who marched and rallied together. We see that Christ, first of all, sinks his sickle and then the angel sinks his sickle in. Here's some thoughts. The first one is seeming like he reaps a harvest. Christ s- represents grain. <laughs> the feasts of Israel happened in order, there were seven of them, and in the midpoints were the grain harvests. The very last harvest was the grape harvest. You remember when he spoke about the second angel, the grapes and the wine press, and that was the blood of all of the ungodly. It's amazing, the prophetic imagery all through Old Testament and New Testament scripture, right? But what we see is that Christ, he's on the horse, he sinks his sickle in, and then the other angel sinks his sickle in. Seems to be that there's a harvest, so the godly are separated from the ungodly. Just like wheat and chaff, the wheat is taken for good. The chaff is thrown into the fire, which are the parts of the plant that can't be used. They're growing simultaneously, but at the end, they're harvested, and then they're separated. Picture of the world. (laughs) So... And then it says that Christ has a sword coming out of his mouth. So there's several things that happen. The sword in the book of Ephesians chapter 6 where it talks about the armor of God, it says that the sword of God, uh, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, right? So we carry that sword, that's our weapon, which is the word of God to, be, to believe it and declare it and see things separated and parted because heavenly realities collide with earthly realities and then the more powerful kingdom is unleashed upon the inferior kingdom and that's because we use the word of God appropriately and properly the way that we're given it so the sword of coming out of Christ's mouth on the horse I think that it's maybe he just speaks and it happens after he sinks his sickle into the earth and then all of them die and then boom they are Uh, Their spirits go to the departed place. The Antichrist and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. And then we're gonna end today in 2 Thessalonians chapter two, verses one through seven. Now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. So this gathering together, it speaks of a few places, is part of where we get this idea of the rapture. Okay, we'll go more into that next week. Um, 1 Thessalonians four is where it really is. Verse two not to be soon shaken in mood or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ has not come. So what he's saying here is, look, don't let these things trouble you. You know, I remember whenever I was younger, and some of these things like, I, just vague memories that I have of like being scared of stuff like this. I don't know if anybody else can call, but like, you know, there are ways that this is preached and taught where it's like people are fearful and scared and, and believers that are, should be walking with strength and authority. And, and Paul is saying like, look, these things shouldn't trouble you. You get that. Like they should actually make your spirit leap. There should be a, a joy and a strength that you find in these things. There shouldn't be a fear that this creates in us at all. And so in verse three, he says, let no one deceive you by any means for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin, the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of perdition. And watch this, we've talked about all this, so just, we're just gonna read the verses. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God and that has worshiped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. So the, none, none of the end comes until all these things happen, he's saying. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know that what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, and it's building, still building now. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth, and destroy with the brightness of his coming i love it it's like sickle sword word and breath and the brightness of his glory and coming just all of that annihilates all of the ungodly at a moment at the day of the lord when he returns and we are with him walk coming back as the armies of god setting the stage for the final battle and then when the battle is over we know that the, the millennial age begins to set in after that. And I don't have time to get into that today. We won't breach that today. But I hope that this is at least somewhat clear um, in the way that we've traveled through a lot of this. The big part is is that there's the return of Christ, there's the final battle at the end, and what our position and what the enemies of God's position look like in that whole stage that's set up. And so there's this period of the seven years before we talked a lot about today and i'm going to touch on this part which is the rapture next week which is with those who are alive on the earth when christ returns what happens to them because we know those who have died are already with the lord so there will be people on the earth when the lord returns and what's interesting (laughs) is that those who are caught up in the air in this thing we call the rapture to go to be with the lord at some point in the seven years that is not completely clear in my opinion but there will also be a massive revival that will take place during the seven-year period. Those who didn't believe, the Bible speaks of two witnesses that God will use to preach the gospel and declare his name. And listen, this is where we, we get, and many believe, and I do too, that much of the nation of Israel is redeemed, is that there is a massive revival that takes place and that Israel begins to accept Christ as their Lord and Savior, and there is a restoration and a redemption of God's chosen people into his kingdom, and also all of those who are on the earth who confess Christ as Lord during the time of the witnessing. There will be a massive revival. Many will be martyred in that time. Many will be killed for Christ because they won't take the mark of the beast, and then their spirits will go to join the Lord in the air with all the rest of us and then there will be some that endure, so we're gonna stop there, all right. Is this helpful, is this interesting? All right, so. (laughs) Let me just close by saying again, the whole point in this, to me, is so that, one, I mean, I love it when God awes us, (laughs) right? And when you see all these Old Testament things and you see the unfolding, I mean, I don't know about you, but it just fascinates me, I'm just like. It's amazing, the accuracy of God. And, and let me just say, we, we can't even see but a part of it. We're just glimpsing a little part of it. I, I feel like when I get to heaven, so much of these things I'm gonna be like, oh my gosh, that's what that meant, holy cow. Like everything is so precise, you know? So I, I want you to see that because it builds your faith and your trust in scripture, but it also causes you to live from that place of faith. That's the thing. like. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. Faith is what we have to have active in order to believe and trust so that the promises and the power of God that's been given to us as heirs actually begins to flow into our lives. You see, people who don't have faith, who don't believe or don't know this, I would just say it to you like this, like... How can you think that they would walk in this world victoriously with all of the promises they've been given if they don't know they have them and they don't have faith in them and they're not exercising them? that makes sense? So the whole idea is to build our faith, to make us strong, mature Christians, not Christians like Paul says that are weak and, and need milk instead of solid food. We become mature in our spirits and in our spirit man. That's what we are all called to do. As a pastor and a minister of the gospel, it's part of my mandate to raise up people who are presented mature in Christ, to strengthen them and grow their faith so that they can be warriors and ambassadors for God and fulfill the purpose and the calling that God has for them in their lives. And it all flows out of this thing right here without this we have nothing with this we have everything that we need and so when we teach on these things and we we go through a lot of this stuff it's to help grow our faith and build our awareness of what's to come but what we presently have now and how to live and walk every day in a place of joy hope peace strength power that the enemy cannot disrupt and rob you of that is what we are called to to live and that life folks that is the abundant life that jesus spoke of he came to give us and that life is the reflection of christ in a hurting and lost and dying world that they need to see to be attracted to what the truth is so that they want what god can give and if we aren't living that life then we're not really reflecting the full power and and, uh, attractiveness of the life that god wants us to have so that people can look on that and see that there's something different in the world not of the world it says don't be swayed we need to do the swaying not be swayed trust me culture will be very happy to sway you You can walk out there and if you're blind and unaware, you're going to get swayed every direction you can possibly imagine because culture in the world is mighty and strong and it's building. But we carry forth a a more powerful force that can actually meet that swaying opposition and say, no, 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 turn around, we're going to do the swaying. We're gonna be the influencers. We're gonna be the ones who move things in the direction of the will of God and not in line with the will of the prince of the power of the air of Satan and who's in control of this kingdom on this earth. Amen?